Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Greg Rosen of Bedrock and John Malas Curiazzi of Spark. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So we're here to talk about a number of topics, one of which is investing in deep tech. Uh, and, and Greg, you mentioned uh, prior to the podcast that investing in deep tech is not an antidote, but sort of a... Um, very interesting in light of not that many consumer opportunities happening right now. So I'm curious if you can unpack that. And then we could talk about... You know, where you guys define deep tech in terms of investable opportunity and where you're most excited about that right now. Yeah. So I think the one of the other interesting sort of aspects is that I really believe is that the laws of physics of like company building, whether it's a deep tech company, a consumer company, an enterprise SaaS company, are are largely the same at a macro level. Um, you know, you still need to hire great people, um, you need to identify a problem. Um, but the nice thing about deep tech uh, is that you have natural defensibility built in, which means whatever the core that you're building is really, really difficult. And so um, I think that's super, super valuable um, looking from a like consumer perspective. And so, for example, um, you know, one of the investments uh, that I, that's unannounced that I'm, I'm working on is a gene therapy to extend the lifespan of dogs. And wow. so that's a... It's a deep tech company. Uh, it's a it's a therapeutic. It's a gene therapy. But the output of that is really this consumer product, which is you inject your dog with this thing. You don't even need to know what it is, um, and now your dog lives longer. And so, from an output and a branding standpoint, uh, it looks just like a consumer product company, but it's backed by this like incredible science and defensibility. Um, and so that's that's what really excites me is that these things can look very similar to a consumer company. Um, and again, the like company building itself, uh, you got to go through the same exercises of, of just like building a great company, hiring great people, raising money. Um, but then you get natural defensibility built in. Yeah. Totally. One, of the, one of the things I think is really exciting, but also really challenging as an investor is the types of signals that you look for when you're investing in deep tech companies. Some of those are the same, but some of those are different. Like you can't look at a seed series A stage deep tech company usually and say, wow, like revenue is ramping so quickly, user engagement looks great. Oftentimes these companies take years and years and years to develop and finally launch their product. So you have to start to look at different signals. And so a lot of the things we think about at Spark are like, what are those signals that you can look at and how do you ideally not just have one kind of snapshot, but multiple snapshots in time to see the velocity of progress that deep tech companies are making. And I think a lot of it has to do with how fast companies are hiring the best technical minds and how quickly those technical minds are making technical progress. Mm -hmm. But figuring out the right things to look at can be quite difficult. Definitely. I mean, it's all, it's all about slope of curve. And so if you don't, if you can't look at the slope of curve of revenue or, um, you know, retention, you have to find other ways to uh, look at the slope of curve and find momentum within these companies. And so a lot of that comes from John's point around hiring, um, around like science, technical de-risk progress, um, some of these other metrics that uh, you can't just comp to. And then it's the best part is that like venture risk, uh, not growth risk, which which is you know what I focus on in this area. A lot of it just comes down to like gut. Do you feel like mm-hmm. there's a lot of momentum here because there it, it isn't in the numbers that you can just go to and look look at. Yeah. 
the the other thing that I like too is the the consumer part of deep tech. I think feels much more intuitive when you look at a company that's building a product. You can evaluate would I want that product or not. Yep. Whereas the B two B side of deep tech, which we also you know invest in at Spark, is a little bit less intuitive. Oftentimes you're talking about industrial customers or customers that you might not understand as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for consumer products, think about things that we've invested in like Oculus or Cruise or you know Wild Type. Like these are products that you could say, okay, pretend I don't know, know anything about the technology. Would I want this as a as a consumer? So in that right. way, it feels more like investing in you know consumer products or consumer internet right. companies. How is investing in deep tech different in twenty nineteen, about to be twenty twenty, versus twenty fifteen or twenty ten? Like, how have you seen it evolve over time? Yeah, the uh, the frothiness, I would say, of the market actually really helps. Um, and you you can sometimes hear investors talk about like a biotech or or deep tech seed um, versus like a you know, consumer software seed. And, and really the rule of, there is no rule of thumb, but how we think about it is, uh, it it usually ends up skipping around. So it goes one round further. Mm -hmm. Um, so what a traditional seed would be for software, maybe, uh, for a deep tech company ends up looking like a software series a, um, and it's great because you just, you need to hire more specialized talent. Um, it usually takes longer to hit certain milestones in order to convince, more, uh, you know, later stage investors to invest, um, and and it's less pattern matching um, yeah. for investors, which just makes your life easier as a founder. When it looks like other great companies, um, you're usually navigating in the dark, um, and and are one of the first to do it. And so, I actually think largely the amount of capital that's flowing around in the venture ecosystem, uh, and again, part of the traditional consumer companies um, being few and far between is like a huge net positive for deep tech. Yeah. I think the biggest difference over the last four or five years is the the variety of different types of investors that are interested in funding these early stage, what initially kind of almost feel like projects. And like, I think if you look four or five years ago, there were a bunch of highly specialized funds that like did deep tech. And now fast forward four or five years a lot of firms are sort of hiring a partner who's focusing more on deep tech or little seed funds are starting that didn't exist before that are just focusing on something like synthetic biology. So I think there's sort of like, there's more breadth and more depth in terms of who's investing in the category. And there's just more shots on goal, which I don't think the success rate of these startups is necessarily increasing, but there's just more of them. Um, and it's just going to be like a larger cohort that end up getting to Series A, Series B, Series C stage. Well, so I see this positive overall for the ecosystem. Totally. And the other and the other benefit too is that we're starting to see more infrastructure enabling infrastructure for deep tech. Yeah. And so when that happens, um, and and the perfect example would be like AWS getting people off of bare metal and having to run um, their own. Is that if you're in the same way that like AWS dramatically lowered the bar to start a software company, you're seeing the same thing of, of multiple like labs of service companies mm-hmm. um, that is making it easier to be uh, and to spin up a, uh, a deep tech company. And so I think that's like this other mega trend that's like starting to happen and lower the bar and barrier to entry to start one of these companies. Is there like what AWS did to software companies? This will happen to deep, like, uh, sort of, it just becomes much easier to start. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we've been yeah. pitched many, many, many yeah, yeah, companies, um, not to name names, that are building the AWS for uh, fermentation, uh, production, yeah. um, lab, uh, like, uh, lab automation, on and on. Even here, like, we're sitting here in a, in a WeWork, there are equivalent 
you know, we work type businesses that are focused, for example, on biotech. And, and it sort of started out as a cottage industry like five or six years ago, and then they're kind of becoming more and more and more professionalized, institutionalized. You'll have shared lab equipment. You know, if you raise two million bucks, you can't afford to go spend five hundred k on some expensive equipment. But if twenty startups are all sharing the same equipment, somebody can amortize that into rent. Yeah. I think so. That trend I think is helping a lot too. Just easier access to, to shared equipment makes a big difference in terms yep. of lowering the barrier to, to research and, and development. Yeah, and even specialized accelerators and incubators, you know, to come to mind. And yeah. Indie Bio has been phenomenal yeah. uh, at, at funding these early stage um, uh, companies in, in the space, and then also even like the Illumina Accelerator, right? As you, mm-hmm. as you talk about equipment, giving um, the companies in their accelerator access to uh, you know really really expensive hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars of um, sequencing equipment that uh, like that infrastructure you know didn't exist ten years ago um, to support these types of companies. Yeah. And when people are talking about deep tech, is that sort of a synonym for frontiers? Or how do you sort of scope out what exactly is, is within scope of deep tech? That's a good question. I, I I don't know. I kind of think about it like, is core R&D central to the success of the company or not? Maybe mm-hmm. that's a light, kind of a lightweight definition. But there's a lot of companies that are building technology and use technology, but there isn't sort of a core R&D problem that they're trying to solve that other people haven't really solved before. Yeah, I, th- I think people like coming up with names whenever something is new. And then once it becomes a status quo, I think part having it enabled by this this new wave of infrastructure, then it just becomes like, techno- like technology companies, yeah. right? Like we don't, we don't really talk, we, we talk a little bit about like, a software company versus a non-software company, but but really all of that is grouped into like it's just technology investing, yeah. and so to me, frontier it just means it's new, yeah. um, and hopefully over the next five plus years, uh, it starts to feel less new and more just like yeah, this is technology investing. Yeah, and so um, one of the things you're uh, invest haven't made investments in uh, ha- sorry sorry one of the things you've made investments in John is uh, ag tech and food. Yep. And and so why don't you dig deeper into out of out of all the spaces why you noticed some big opportunities there and why you made the best you did. And sure. it's funny, yeah. after this podcast, Justin Maris from um you know Justin Maris, he had this rant about Beyond Meats. He's mm. not a fan of Beyond Meats, his D to C food bone broth company uh yeah. in Texas that's doing quite well. Um and you're you know, of course, an investor in one of those uh, food companies. Um what don't you um Yeah, and you know, this is an area that Greg actually does super well too, so I'm I'm curious cool. to, to, to hear his thoughts. I think the thing that's happening right now in deep tech and ag specifically, like there's this whole software thing happening in ag, which is exciting, <clears throat> slow but steady, where these farms are modernizing, the way that people are thinking about supply chain is modernizing. That's driving a lot of venture investment. But then there's the other side of it, which is like new technology hitting the farm for the first time. Um, robotics um, other types of interesting hardware like hydroponics, and then you know in in the meat world where where Greg and I both have uh, you know are involved with companies, there's a bunch of stuff happening around meat, whether it's plant based meat or cultured meat. Um, suddenly, this like there's this cultural thing happening around you know concern around the environment, and concern around you know animal cruelty, and how are we going to feed the planet. And then also, you know, biotech suddenly is like wow, we can actually start to do some of these things in relatively short periods of time at relatively reasonable costs. Um, so I think there's like there's a bunch of different things that are all happening at once that are kind of converging. Um, but it's a sort of mix of, I don't know, it's like Anthony Bourdain food culture on one side, yeah. environmental concerns on the other side, robotics coming in, biotech coming in, and it's creating this, um, oh, and software, of course, and it's creating this sort of special moment right now for food and ag tech. Yeah. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, market size rules right. everything. Yeah. And Huge. like people eat 
three times a day. Uh, the like global meat market is like a true trillion dollar market. I know yeah. that's like in vogue to say a lot of different markets are, are trillion dollar markets. Like it, it truly is. And, More, yeah. um, and so, and so I think the, like the fact that the size of opportunity here, again, if the science works, um, and, and then there's so much environmental impact as well, um, uh, around like carbon reduction, uh, I, I forget the actual statistic. I wish I knew. I should know it off the top of my head of like the amount of carbon dioxide that's like given into the environment, uh, released into the environment from uh, you know cows and animals. It's it's dramatic. It's like on the order of ten percent or something. Uh, of yeah. all of our emissions. Yeah. yeah, and so there are sort of all of these effects starting at the tip of the spear around like can we make meat. Um, more affordable um, and and more accessible, and then it, it goes down from there. Yeah, and so what would you sort of say are your requests for startups within within deep tech? Like, what, what opportunities are you really looking at, or you want entrepreneurs to experiment with, or that you want to potentially fund in the future? Yeah, I want, um, and 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 this is sort of generalized, um, and maybe I'll think of like a specific answer as John's talking. Um, I think in terms of what is the consumer product output, right? And mm-hmm. so, uh, again, uh, what we discussed earlier in the podcast is like longevity, increasing the age of like a pet as, as pet owners become pet parents. Um, like that consumer product really cuts through the noise and doesn't exist. Like no one uh, to date is, is doing that. And so to me, the question is, what are the consumer products that can be enabled by some sort of advancement in um, technology? And so, you know, we've we've talked about food being a big one. Longevity is another one. Um, but uh, I, I would say probably something around carbon reduction emissions, um, something that that can help. Uh, the global warming disaster yeah. that we have going on yeah. uh, feels like one of the most impactful, important areas that I'd love to to see someone working on. I am starting to see more entrepreneurs interested um, in tackling things. Yeah, yeah. Are you guys seeing anything you're interesting there? In and around uh, yeah. climate. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, I'd say the closest we've gotten at Spark is just stuff that in and around food and ag, which yeah. obviously, as yeah, we discussed before, has this kind of strong tie in. Um, YC is doing a lot of really interesting work yeah. around carbon and, and around uh, kind of this. I don't know if they want to brand it or if the community wants yeah. to brand it as clean tech, but it is sort of like clean tech 2.0. Right. Uh, but it's not, hey, let's try to compete with, you know, mass manufacturing, you know, solar panels in China with, you know, different technology here yeah. in the U.S. It's like, let's take kind of very different, very distinct angles. And, and yeah. So I think it's exciting. It feels like there's something bubbling up. Like totally. two years yeah. ago, no one was talking about this. People are calling it like the Greta effect. Yeah. Um, I've heard a couple of people use that term. There's just sort of an awareness about it now. And I get emails all the time from people, particularly in food and ag, who are like, I work in an investment bank or I work at a consulting firm. I really want to get into ag tech because I just believe in the mission. I believe in yeah. the need to do something there. How can I get involved? And that I think is, is happening yeah. a lot in climate right and, now. And, and I'm a little more cyclical, uh, cynical on, uh, I think it's hard to go and create a company that just says, Hey, we're going to attack climate change. Yeah. Uh, because as much as like, I care. Um, I think the rest of the world doesn't. Yeah. And so uh, the way that I've approached it is um, ideally it is a derivative effect or downstream effect yeah. of a company that is um, is solving a more tangible problem right now. Right. Like, yeah. um, you know, 
one of our investments that we made at Box Group was uh, Bowery Farming. Mm-hmm. And so building a vertical urban farm right outside of metropolitan cities um, will allow you to uh, have higher quality, ideally cheaper. They're, they're starting with bib lettuce and, and produce. Um, but the effect of that, obviously, is that hopefully we can lower greenhouse emissions. Same with Memphis Meats. Yeah. Uh, growing synthetic animal protein, uh, the the like downstream effect is ideally impacting the climate. But I think it's hard to just go after that right now, at least until there's some regulatory yeah. change. I think I think that that's the biggest. If I think about this wave of interest in like food, ag, energy versus the one ten years ago or so, I feels like this one has a lot more focus on products and a lot more focus on consumer. Yeah. Um, the one, one area that I think is really interesting, which is tied in with all this is plants. Like my yeah. wife is probably like, if she listens to this, which I hope she does probably roll her eyes, but I've gotten really into indoor and outdoor plants. And I yeah. just feel like the urban, you know, millennial who like probably doesn't have kids yet. And maybe doesn't have enough space for a dog or a cat. Like plants are this like amazing living thing that they could yeah. interact with and take care of. And I've seen a couple of interesting companies. Did you see of, Bloomscape in uh, Detroit? I did not see that one. Yeah. Well, anyways, I was already offline. I'll, I'll talk about it, but I think there's, yeah. there's something to do there, and like synthetic biology, yeah, plants. Totally. How do you take? Like, there's so there's something interesting. I think that's going to cook up around that space, which is yeah. kind of still the same as it's been for the last like hundred years. Totally. Uh, are there any other uh, requests for startups you might have, John? Whether it's or where you want to see entrepreneurs experiment and build, whether it's in ag tech, food, or just deep tech more broadly. I think fertility is a really interesting yeah. area that's getting a lot of um, uh, investment. You know, an attention right now. Um, I, I have like lots and lots of friends who've you know gotten their egg, eggs frozen just proactively. I uh, also have a lot of friends, of course, who've done IVF. Yeah, I feel like that whole process is still incredibly expensive and uh, draining and difficult. And there's going to be innovation not just on the like financing and brand, but also sort of on the core technology side to make yeah. that cheaper, better, faster. Um, this is also like a bit edgy, but I do think that there's going to be a lot more that's done sort of around like genetics um, yeah. and genetic modification. Probably not initially with humans, but maybe maybe pets is an interesting place yep. to start. Um, and I think that like 100 years from now, stuff like that's probably going to be mainstream. And the right. way we get there, we have to be very careful and very thoughtful. But yeah. there's going to be some very like interesting, ambitious, edgy companies that kind of get built in and around that space. I'm curious to see how that unfolds. Yeah, I'll I'll give one more tangible one that's in and around the pet space, um, and it's actually how I found um, this gene therapy to, to um, increase the the lifespan of dogs. Is that I was actually looking for a uh, there's a company in Korea that does dog cloning, and I actually wanted to find one here in the in the United States. Wow. Um, so I haven't <laughs> um, I haven't found it yet. So uh, that's like a very tangible. I would love to find a company that is uh, cloning dogs for exactly the same reason that that John mentioned, which is, uh, I think in deep tech, you have to look for regulatory ARP. Um, And so if you're building a longevity company for humans, it's 10 years plus and tens of millions of dollars to even get to the, does this maybe even work clinical trial area? Um, And then obviously with with dogs and pets, it's uh, it's much, much faster. It looks like two and a half to three years um, and maybe three to $5 million. And so... um, I, I think looking for regulatory ARB and again having a really clear consumer product is is super valuable. We're actually uh, investing with you in that. In that I, I, I know. Really? Yeah. yeah, I know. So, oh, exciting. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
It's okay. <laughs> I, I, I generalized it, yeah, yeah but... Totally. Yeah. I'm more excited. Um, let's talk about new computing platforms. Uh, VR, AR, Quantum. Uh, John, how have you thought about it? Where are you excited? Crypto, of course. Yeah. How have you thought about it? Where are you excited? Yeah, so um, I'd say we've been interested in kind of all of the above at Spark. And, you know, we were investors in, in Oculus and... Uh, we're investors in a in an awesome uh, actually a bunch of companies are focusing on on kind of AR from um, North, in, uh, which used to be called Thomic Labs, to uh, company Niantic behind Pokemon Go. Um, I think that we're just the cusp of, of like the really interesting mass adoptable consumer applications in VR and AR. It's not that's not really my area of, of specialty or focus, but I'm super excited for kind of the world discovering what those are over time. I think that the, there's a couple of social applications in, in VR that are really interesting. People may have heard of like Rec Room, for example, which have a sort of like organic social network type feel. And I think there's going to be a lot more stuff like that that unfolds. Quantum computing is something that I'm fascinated with. I actually took like a couple of days last week and just went super deep wow. on the science. So I was a physics major undergrad. And so I was like, I was like dusted off some of my quantum uh, textbooks and I bought a quantum computing textbook specifically. It's like, it's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things that I still can't figure out. And I've met with a ton of companies. We've looked at a lot. Um, I still can't figure out A is is best done at Google or IBM or in a startup. And there's probably pros and cons. And then B, is this something that really starts hitting like commercially in like two to three years? Or is it more like five to 10 or 15 years? But uh, gee, like it, it's amazing the kind of things you're going to be able to do when quantum computers really work well. And for the for the uninitiated, maybe give like a one minute to TLDR. Sure. Okay. I'm going to screw this up so badly. <laughs> okay. Essentially, like basically what you're working with in a quantum computer is quantum memory versus memory that we typically think about in the form of bits or ones and zeros. And in quantum memory, the things you can do that are interesting are due to this concept of superposition. So in a bit, you have either a one or a zero. In a quantum bit or a qubit, you have some combination of a one and a zero that's existing simultaneously. And when you measure it, it has to decide, is it a one or is it a zero? The cool thing is when you do math and you basically perform logical functions or run these things through gates, as it were, you can actually perform these, these, this math on all of the different combinations of bits that exist. So instead of saying, hey, we have a, you know, a zero, that zero is going to go into a certain logical function, we could say, hey, we have a zero or a one, let's put both of those through at the same time. So you start to get speed up in ways that's very unintuitive. And you can start to do things like factor very large multiples of prime numbers, search through databases, etc. at rates that are you know, polynomially or exponentially faster than the way that a traditional computer would work. Right now, it's very difficult to do any of those things because the quantum computers that we have are extraordinarily basic and, and difficult to operate. But in a world where they worked really well, it starts to revolutionize the way that we think about huge chunks of the computing industry. Cool. Yeah. Greg, how about, how about you in terms of new computing platform? Yeah, so I the way that I approach it um, is actually like, and I don't know if Chris Dixon was the one that actually um, sort of coined this term, but it, it, if, you, if you actually look at the primitives that, any of these things unlock. Um, you actually don't need uh, developer primitives. Um, you don't necessarily need a new computing platform, right? So, like every time a uh, a new version of iOS comes out, I go and read through the SDK and say, like, okay, are you unlocking the ability for me to now like share my screen easily, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a new developer primitive. It, it doesn't have to be a new platform. And and so at the end of the day, the reason why new platforms are so interesting, VR, AR, is that they're less mature and they're constantly adding more and more of these like underlying primitives to an SDK. And ultimately that gives fuel to developers to go build really interesting things. And so of course I'm interested and 
always looking through like what Oculus and other great VR companies are, are doing, what Apple will hopefully announce with their um, AR headset. But I also think that if you actually boil down, whether it's a, a new or mature platform, to the underlying primitives that you're giving developers, that's the unit that I really care about. Mm. Yeah. Like the like sort of Lego blocks. Yes, yes. That's a great way to put it, yeah. yeah. Like, what are the Lego blocks that you're giving a developer to actually go build really compelling new experiences? Um, it just so happens that the, the you know, mobile platforms are, are pretty mature. But again, I'm, like, super bullish on, on what's happening with screen sharing, how we're, we're going to start moving. Like, if you think about what Twitch has done, uh, like, the evolution there from in order to to you know watch someone play video games you had to physically be in person yeah. and then twitch you know came out of justin tv um and and now they have native products like in xbox and playstation and now with ios i think we're going to move to a concept of like everyone is a streamer now yeah. um and and i think that's enabled it, it doesn't exist yet but it's enabled by apple and android um apple and google allowing that primitive of okay you can access the video buffer coming out of the screen right um and i'm excited to see more consumer social applications like um really play off of that yeah are there other examples of companies that you could see emerging from from that trend or or just broadly you know we mentioned sort of consumer slowdown but any other consumer social companies that you want to see exist or think could uh yeah, I, I think Squad's a really cool consumer social app that that is really playing on on this idea of of screen sharing. You want to describe it for the uninitiated? Um, it it works uh, very similarly to how you'd imagine like a Skype uh, yeah. conversation only on mobile, uh, but but it, it it is super seamless and easy to start sharing your screen. Um, so the best way is like go go try out the app. But I yeah. think there's a couple of interesting effects when when you sort of come to like screen sharing first. One of um, and and I think they're fine with me saying this. Um, but one of the the really early compelling use cases that that they're seeing is people actually um, significant others, couples, friends sharing their camera roll mm. with their significant other. Mm. And and why that's so interesting is it actually changes the paradigm between. Um, push versus pull content. So like right now, if I am on a, a trip and I want to share a bunch of photos that I've taken with my with my girlfriend or significant other, I have to go and individually select the photos that I want to push to them. And and that takes a lot of time and it's not a shared experience, right? I, it's it's uh, it's async. And so what what screen sharing allows me to do is I get to go uh, enter into a synch- synchronous um, you know conversation and then you know just have this shared experience going through like oh here are all the photos and and you know she'll say like hey go into go into that one that one mm-hmm. looks really cool and it and it really changes the dynamic um, even though the unit is still the same which is like I want to go see the pictures that you took um, and so I think that's like a really fascinating way um, to make something feel like a pull and not a push yeah um, are there any other primitives that you're just waiting to come out or you think could be super interesting if, if they emerged. Um, if nothing comes to mind, no pressure. Yeah, I think an obvious example um, is is CRISPR. Um, yeah. You know, being able, as as John said, to edit. You know, the underlying code of living and breathing things. Like I remember when I was a kid, I used to like go around and say like nanobots are coming. They're going to be like these little computers all in our blood running around, um, and, and give us superpowers. 
Turns out, like it's 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 not nano computers. It's actually just reprogramming yeah. the the like true DNA in our system. That's the nanobots. Um, and so I think more tools uh, and infrastructure to make it really easy, uh, as easy as it is to flip a, a couple bits or qubits, um, to actually edit and change the DNA of of humans or do dog cloning. Um, I think is going to be really impactful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Um, where in crypto are you excited right now, Greg? Um, mm. And I'm curious how that's uh, evolved over time because you've been looking at it for a few yeah. years now. Yeah, to me, you know, one of the one of the cool primitives in crypto is is actually regulatory arb. Um, is that no one knows how to define this thing, and so what that means is is that you get coverage to actually go and just like experiment and build things, and hopefully they get to enough scale. Um, before people get into trouble. And if you look at some of the big, biggest businesses, whether it's Uber or Airbnb, all of those were built on some sense of like regulatory arbitrage and, um, and then just got to a point where their scale was so large. And so, um, you know, some examples of that in crypto is, you know, how do you, it, it's all focused on money. And so how can you, you know, move money uh, or, or value across borders, um, how can you um, safely store money? And I'm using money generally. Um, doesn't matter what the token or instrument yeah. is. Um, I think those are interesting primitives. You're seeing a lot in DeFi coming up. Um, but again, at least the view that I see it um, is is around the cross-border regulatory arb. I think it's probably going to be one of the first killer use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of already is. It, it, it is, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You know, Bitcoin's... Um, uh, but I think there are other instrumentation there. And I think it's also hard, I admit, like, as someone who lives in the United States, like, a lot of the DeFi value props don't resonate and matter to me right. because we have a really mature, incredible financial institution yeah. and system. And so um, I, I think I'm just trying to spend more time and learn what the pain points are. Um, you know, there's this company that uh, was focused on cross-border um you know, sending sending money back home so that their family could buy staples, and uh, instead of taking whatever the the hit was on, uh, however they were doing money transfer, and someone was taking thirty percent, um, you can leverage crypto as the mechanism to actually do that transaction. But from the end consumer standpoint, all they know is that. They use this consumer front end and product to send their money back home. And then there's a POS that sits in the supermarket in uh, X country that allows them to go buy staples. And so uh, it, increasingly like invisible crypto, I think, is is going to be really powerful because no one cares about the regulatory yeah. arb. They just care yeah. about what can you actually do with this that's thing. The, the, I, I like the term invisible crypto. And I think that's where we get really excited also at Spark is when there's just beautiful products that are made that consumers or, or business people love that happen to have crypto on the back end. Yeah. They, um, they should know that it's powered by crypto. Right. It should just feel like magic. And ideally yeah. it's something that could uniquely could only be built right. with crypto because if it could be built otherwise, it would definitely be built otherwise. Yep. Crypto is not the most convenient way of building something. Definitely. You guys did rare bits. We did rare bits. Uh, we're also, we also did Coinbase yeah. uh, and a couple of other investments. And, and, and so we're really focused on finding these like, very product oriented founders that are saying we're going to build like a beautiful, amazing experience that happens to leverage crypto. Interestingly though, this first wave of innovation around crypto over the last 
I don't know if it's fair to call it first wave, but first yeah. major wave over the last you know four or five years, it's been almost exclusively focused on the infrastructure and developer yeah. tools and kind of laying the groundwork for what eventually become those products. Yeah. Um, so for that reason, like you know, you look through our, you, we've made probably three or four or five maybe investments that touch crypto in one way or another right. out of. I don't know, 120 or 150. Yeah. I think we'll do many more in the future as it starts to become more and more application focused, totally. um, and less and less kind of you know uh, basic infrastructure focused. Yeah. And and the great thing about crypto is that again, the ethos of the space is is really grounded in open source. And so I think what this allows is that my my gut says that the the biggest companies over the next two to three years. Um, crypto-focused companies, whether they define themselves as crypto or not, or just are leveraging it, um, will end up going full stack. Will mm-hmm. uh, And part of the value of having the crypto ecosystem sort of be built on open source is that you get to, even if you own the full stack and end up building additional components and pieces um, to the underlying infrastructure, uh, you can get up to speed so much faster because of the work that everyone else has done. Yeah. Um, and I don't have... Like I don't subscribe to the religious ideology of like you have to use this enabling infrastructure. Yeah. You can't modify it. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's just like can you leverage all the work that people have done on the infrastructure side? Whether uh, you actually you know fork and change the underlying infrastructure to suit what you're doing, or you can just use it out of the box. But I do think you're going going to have to at least in the next couple of years own the full stack to show people what is possible here Uh, because there aren't a bunch of examples of like full stack crypto companies or crypto enabled companies that aren't you know pure play sort of enabling infrastructure like i would say coinbase is Mm -hmm. and coinbase is getting there with with some of their wallets and sort of other pieces um but that's that core business is still a, a, a custody provider yeah, you one trend or one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is, is regulatory ARB. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if there are other spaces where you think there's sort of a unique advantage to regulatory ARB. One sort of, I mean, emerging over like a hundred year time frame that is, uh, and I've been spending a lot of time with Bology uh, from Coinbase recently yeah. is uh, startup cities, uh, yeah. ch- charter cities, uh, which is you know directly trying to address re- regulatory ARB. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if there are other spaces that you think a benefit from regulatory ARB or trying to address that in sort of interesting, interesting ways. Um. I don't know if this is technically regulatory ARB, um, and I'd probably get in trouble if I if if I said it was. But healthcare, specifically telehealth, um, I don't want to say that it's the reason I say it's it's not really regulatory ARB is that actually um, you know individual states have have sort of um, been making progress on saying how can you build a patient a patient physician relationship. Um, but I think the challenge there is that it's so unique and the interpretation is is on a state-by-state basis. So even if you get clarity in one state, um, you know, I'm an investor in uh, this company, Roe, which is a hold company for Roman um, and Rory and a couple of other uh, brands. And, uh, and, and you know, they're, they're operating across 50 states. And so each state... Uh, has their own definition. And again, you have to do your own interpretation of how you can build that um, patient-physician relationship 
via telehealth, whether it has to be synchronous, asynchronous, does it need a video chat? Does, you know, how do you ask the specific amount of questions um, in order to like give a physician in that state enough data in order to, uh, to successfully diagnose them that changes per condition. And so maybe it's not regulatory R, but it's like regulatory complexity yeah. Um, yeah. that, that I think is, is really exciting in healthcare. The whole consumerization of healthcare is, is an, another mega trend that I'm incredibly bullish on. Yeah. And the other place that I would point to is what's happening around labor too. Yeah. Um, it's like, a, obviously it's a touchy and difficult subject, you know, within the United States, obviously there's these big kind of questions around, W2 or 1099. But then even thinking about more broadly, you know, we have huge issues around not being able to bring folks into our country that we want to, right. to, to, to work in these companies. And I think that's led uh, alongside, you know, great productivity tools, et cetera, to this explosion in remote work and thinking about how do we efficiently set up offices in other countries? How do we efficiently operate completely distributed teams? How do you deal with the regulatory complexity of having employees in all of these different countries? Um, and I think that being able to do that well has become a big source of competitive advantage for a lot of companies. And then also being able to provide that has also become a really big business. Totally. Um, and that's sort of like an interesting thing. I mean, obviously that's been around for a long time, but that seems like, you know, pretty much every conversation I have with a startup today, there's some question around what's your strategy right. for just you know, building distributed teams totally. and going to other countries, remote teams, et cetera. And it wasn't, you know, five years ago. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about uh, John about uh, labor marketplaces. Yeah, and if you've found you know better access, obviously a huge investor in Rig Up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you found things that you're excited about, or how you think about the future of labor marketplaces, or the unbundling of LinkedIn, yeah, or- it's an area that uh, I think is evergreen. I just think that essentially, if you look at the way that the labor markets are structured, many many parts of the economy, in fact, probably most parts of the economy, have some flexing up and flexing down of of need of demand for labor, whether it's on an hourly basis or a weekly basis or monthly or et cetera. And you'll have people who support that. Um, and oftentimes there's temp agencies set up or different types of staffing agencies that have been around and haven't changed for decades that support these industries. RigUp is an awesome company. I, I wish Spark were an investor in RigUp um, that is you know addressing this for the oil and gas industry. But if you look, you know, hospitality, retail, you know, healthcare is a huge one. Um, uh, I'm invested in one in the life sciences space. There's so many industries that utilize labor in ways that are not obvious. Um, and I think that we live in a world now where everybody's looking at, you know, what are the ways where I can get the most out of my career, earn a great income, have flexibility. And um, if you can find ways of stitching together labor and opportunity in a clever way, I think you can start to really make a dent in some of these very old school staffing uh, industries that, that have existed for a long time. So we're, we're investing in a lot of companies in this space. You know, we're invested in, for example, in, in Instawork, um, which is in the hospitality space. Um, I already mentioned Clora, which is his life sciences one. Just did another one, which we haven't yet announced, but talk about soon in another industry. Um, of course, in you know B two C, you look at things like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash. There's there's been sort of like a a, a lot of attention given there over the last ten years. But I think increasingly B two B labor marketplaces are becoming interesting. And then things like Andela, which which is sort of in this remote work engineering um, staffing space. 
Um, and there's a bunch of other companies like Terminal and others that are going after that in different ways. So I see it as this like huge evergreen space. It's going to take advantage of new software. It's going to take advantage of new culture also. The cultural shifts that are going on in the way that we work really impact the ability for these companies to kind of get traction quickly into scale. Right. And and the only other thing that I would say around the labor marketplaces, which is interesting, is that everyone calls themselves a labor marketplace, but you actually have to discern whether it is a true marketplace mm. or actually just a job board. Um, and, and at least the way that I think about it is that you have to bind the transaction um, between the supply and demand. And what I mean by that is uh, if, if you're a hospital system, if you're not in uh, as like a software layer um, in that demand, meaning you're like seeing the demand as it comes from the hospital system and doing the matching to supply that's on your platform, which are, you know, let's call it a nurse, a physician. Um, if you don't have visibility into that entire transaction, then you're not you're not a true marketplace in my mind. Um, mm. Which is fine. You can you can build big businesses just being a job board, um, but you really need to own that full stack in order to in order to be a true labor marketplace in my mind. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of first cuts at these la- at these at these labor areas. Yes. And looking more like a job board. Yeah. And building something that's full stack, I think, is significantly more capital intensive and more difficult. Yeah. But I think ultimately the reward is, is larger as yeah, well. Yeah, and you get, you got to start somewhere, right? Like most people start on the supply side, capture a bunch of great supply, and you can end up routing that, even if, even if it has to be you know really manual or, or managed at the beginning. Um, but ultimately, you want to get the true sense of of what is GMV, what is placement. Yeah. Uh, in order to do that, you need to not only just own the supply, you need to own the demand as well. Yeah. And um, this is obviously an outlier in the job boards, but I, I, I read some tweet that Indeed did like $4 billion Yeah, Indeed's year. an incredible amazing business. business. Amazing yeah. business. Yeah. Shout out to USV. Yeah. For, that's wow. that's a monster. And I'd be curious about, you know, you think about Craigslist. Like there's, there's, a, there's a couple of businesses that, that have just been unbelievable around this. It does make me think, though, that there's going to be places to pick off. Yeah. And that it's vul- it's not... Like on its own, on, in the aggregate, indeed, is a great, and I have a lot of respect for the company, but there's probably vulnerabilities yeah, on an industry-by-industry industry basis where you say, I could build a 10x better experience if yeah. I owned the whole experience and it weren't just sort of a job board. And so a lot of these new B2B labor marketplaces are basically looking at the, what, what are Indeed's yeah. top categories, where are the biggest issues, um, and where could technology really help? I think one place that we think about is where is their urgency? Yeah. Because if there's urgency, a job board is probably not your friend. If there's urgency, you need a service that's going to find you someone very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, if you can wait for three months, then a job board is probably fine. If you need someone yep. in two hours, you can't rely on a job board. So I think the high, the more more high urgency cases are the places where sort of a full stack marketplace is. You think about Uber, it's the same yeah. thing, right? If you could wait, call a taxi and wait for the next day, it's a lot less important than like, I need someone right now. Totally. I'm going to be sensitive to... Uh, time. Um, maybe last question: Is there a um, a space that we haven't yet discussed that you are curious to go deeper on, or have gone deep on, but you haven't yet found a, a company in the space, or decided for whatever reason, hey, you're just not going to make a bet there? It's it's too early, or it's too late, it's can't get there yet, or want to get there but haven't yet. And if not, we can end on the last question. I say never say never, but yeah. for me, for me, it's fertility. It's yeah. we, we we have not yet made a bet in fertility. <laughs> It feels like it's just such an interesting category. Yeah. So, so there's going to be many multi-billion dollar businesses, I think, built around fertility. Yeah. 
I, I think about it, where is their uncomfortable risk? Hmm. And I remember three to four years ago looking at Memphis Meats and Geltor as investments in synthetic um, biology. Uh, that felt really like uncomfortable risk. Like, what do I, as yeah. you know, I was an engineer by trade before I got into venture, and I was like, what do I know about Synbio? And again, back to like the laws of physics of company building are the same. Um, I think you can meet all the teams that are working on it, and ideally at at, at true venture risk, you can you can hopefully pick the right ones. Um, and so, you know, right now, I think uncomfortable risk. Um, is sort of in two areas. One, we talked about, I think, therapeutics. Yeah. Um, super, super uncomfortable. Yes. Most VCs will say, sorry, like, we're, we're good with Symbio, but we're not good with therapeutics. Yeah. Goodbye. Um, so I think that's one. Um, and it's part of the reason yeah. doing um, the gene therapy dog company that we talked about. Um, and then two, I, it's funny because this has been the best category of the last decade, is, is pure consumer social. Yeah. Um, I think most people do not want to take true venture risk, early stage risk there. Um, they're like, oh, let's wait until we see like metrics and engagement. Um, and by then, especially with all the capital flowing around, it is, you know, a, a, a consumer social company that's actually working is going to be the, yeah. mo the most competitive deal in the world. And so I think taking early consumer social, right. you know, pre-seed and seed risk um, feels very, very uncomfortable. So those are the two areas that, that I want to lean into. Yeah. My guests today have been uh, John Melz-Kirazi of Spark and Greg Rosen of, of uh, Bedrock. Guys, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 